You have to see it for yourself. I can't explain it to you. I can't describe it to you. You just have to go and you have to see it for yourself. I have heard those words so many times over the years. And every time I've heard them, I really, really, really just wanted the person to explain it to me because I didn't want to have to go see it for myself. I really, really, really didn't want to have to make a plan or a trip to go see whatever it is that they saw. I just wanted them to explain it to me. In fact, recently, my sister and her husband took a trip out west to Arizona and Utah to explore the Grand Canyon, to trek through Zion National Park and go see Arches National Park and do all these really cool things that you would do if you went out west. And when, I, when they came back, I asked her, I said, okay, so tell, tell me about it. How was it? What was it like? And she's like, you just have to go for yourself. There, there just are not words to describe to you the vastness of the Grand Canyon or the formations that they saw at Arches. You, she just couldn't explain it to me. And I, and I kind of understand that because though I haven't made a trip out to the Grand Canyon since she went, uh, several years back, I had a friend of mine went and saw, went to Colorado Springs and explored like Garden of the Gods and Pikes Peak and saw the Rockies. And when he came back, I was like, so tell me, tell me about that experience in same words. You just have to go see it for, for yourself. You have to experience that yourself. And uh, by the grace of God, uh, just uh, in a few months from that time, I had a trip to Colorado Springs, so I was actually going to be able to go and see for myself. And as I walked through the Garden of the Gods and saw these formations and sat at the foot of the Rockies and hiked Pike's Peak, it truly was one of those moments where if anyone had asked, I would have had to say, you just have to see it for yourself. I can't explain to you how those views and those vistas took my breath away. You just have to go see it for yourself. And I'm sure every one of us at some point along your travels, I know some of you have taken cruises through the Mediterranean and Alaska and the Caribbean. You've been all these places in the world, and I'm sure there are moments in your life where somebody asks you, and you're just like, you, I, can't, I can't explain it. You, you have to go see it for yourself. Or someone said those words to you, and then when you finally went, you understood what it was that they were saying when they said, you have to see it for yourself. There are so many things in this world that God has given us that are just indescribable. They cannot be explained in words. And so this past week, I was on a retreat 
if that's what I can call it, because it feels like retreat isn't really the right word to describe it. But this retreat is actually called the journey, and it's not just one retreat, it's six retreats over the next two years. So over the next two years, I will be gone six times to go to this retreat. And this retreat in the most simple way that I can explain it is it is a retreat for spiritual formation in leadership. So it's a retreat to form me spiritually so that I can be a better leader. So I can lead myself well. I can lead the church well. I can lead in the community well. It is a spiritual formation in leadership. But I can tell you that, that premise of what that retreat is about, but the things that I experienced and encountered on that retreat I simply have to use the words, you just have to go experience it for yourself. I can't put into words what it was like to be there, to hear these teachings that transformed the way that I thought about my relationship with the Father. It's simply indescribable. It's something that you have to experience for yourself. And to be quite honest, when I was driving up to the Gatlinburg area, that's where this was, it's like a five-hour drive. And as I was driving up there, to be honest, I was not in a great place. Depression was setting in a little bit, and I was wondering if there was anything that I was going to get out of it, if this retreat was actually going to do anything for me, because I felt like I was in a dry and weary land. I was not thinking that it was possible for me to get anything out of it when I just was feeling so distant from the Lord. I wasn't in a good place, but, but God. There was this moment where everything shifted. And I realized that being dry and empty and weary is exactly where God wanted me to be so that when I got there, he could do abundantly more in me. but you have to experience it for yourself to really understand what I'm saying. But I offer that as a story and a testimony for each, for each of us to be drawn in, to ask ourselves, what is the invitation of God today as we continue to explore who God is, whether or not we can know him through looking through the scriptures, if it's possible that he is actually revealing himself to us, I want us to ask the question, what is God's invitation to each and every one of us individually 
to come and experience Him in a new way that maybe we have not encountered before. And so we began this series by looking at God's immutability, this unchanging and unwavering nature of who God is. And we started there because we have to understand that God cannot get better or worse. Because if he can get better or worse, then he is not currently good. And that also means that anything that we look at in Scripture about who God says he is, then that means that it could possibly change one way or another. But he does not change. So everything that we explore is exactly as he is today as he was tomorrow and as he will be or as he was yesterday and as he will be tomorrow and then last week we turned to our thematic passage in exodus chapter 34 and we asked the question of how is this god one who has descended by implicitly realizing that god is also transcendent that he is a God that is other from his creation, that he is far above, not in distance, but in quality of being. Meaning that in his infinitude, he is not like us in our finite nature. And I think that the realization, at least that I came to when I was working through that passage, is that there are times and cases where I have completely forgotten God's transcendence. Or maybe there are times that I really honestly didn't even know it. It wasn't processing. It wasn't realizing how great God was, the the fullness of his being, and how it should really stir within me this sense of awe and fear of his magnitude. Not a fear of necessarily being afraid, but a fear of reverence because of who he is. Right now, you can go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. And if you don't have your Bible on you, it's in the Pew Bible on page 23. But this is the passage that we're going to be spending our time in this morning. But before we read Genesis 28, I want to quickly again read our passage in Exodus 34. And this is verses 5 through 7. So remember that we're using this passage because this is what this is the one passage that God actually says who he is about himself. So this is God describing himself in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Hear these words. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, speaking to Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so last week we focused on 
the transcendence revealed in this passage by not looking at what was there, but by looking at what was not there. The implicit implication of those words. But today when we read this passage, we're going to look at the explicit implication of what is being said in Scripture. And so when we read our Bibles on our own, we have to be able to see what is both present in the passage and what is maybe intentionally absent from the passage or what might be explicitly stated but implicitly implied. And so today we're going to look at what is explicitly stated. And so just as we implied that when God descended that he must have come from somewhere and we determined that it wasn't a physical location, that heaven is not directly above us and God descends from the heaven that's just above the sky, but that he descends from some transcendent place, making him other than his creation. But now as we visit this verse, we can see the explicit statement and we're gonna focus on the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Therefore, in our passage today, we're going to explore what it means to hear that God descended or God descends and that God stood with or that he stands with. And so, uh, really, I'm going to use Wayne Grudem again. I think that's a really great way to kind of bring this into a space is speaking from a theologian that has better and more clear words than I. So Wayne Grudem says this in regards to what this topic is, right? And the topic is what we call imminence. This is called God's imminence, not eminence, which is like when you bow down to his eminence, right? A person, although he's also that, but we're talking about his imminence. And so God is very much involved in creation for it is continually dependent on him for its existence and functioning. The technical term used to speak of God's involvement in creation is the word imminent, meaning remaining in creation. The God of the Bible is no abstract deity removed from and uninterested in creation. The Bible is the story of God's involvement with his creation and particularly the people within it. Man, that gives me goosebumps, right? I mean, think about it. We're talking about last week, a transcendent God completely other than creation, not created himself, but the great creator being that creates all things. And yet that very being, eternal, infinite, transcendent, and I love how he says it, that the Bible is the story of God's involvement with his creation, particularly the people within it. God is particularly interested in being involved with the people in his creation. That is God's imminence. And so it is hard to read scripture 
and not see God involved in his creation. I mean, think about it. From the very beginning, God formed the earth and formed, right, the stars and the heaven and the sun and the moon. He created, right? But he also created man out of dust with his own hands. And then he created woman out of the man's rib with his own hands. And then even after Adam and Eve fell in creation because of their disobedience, God still came in the cool of the day to walk with them. God came to be with them even knowing what had already happened. And then after that, what's the first thing that God does is he makes Adam and Eve clothes to wear. God is particularly interested in his people. And then even when all of creation is growing intensely wicked, God appears to Noah, grieved, not angry, but grieved that man had come so far from where they were supposed to be. And then from Noah, we then get the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The particular family that God was going to use for the blessing and redemption of all people. The particular family in which God was going to be involved to bless us all. God is interested in the particulars of his creation. And so today, we're going to turn to our passages in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22, because it is in Jacob's story that we're going to look to see this full eminence of who God is. And so read with me in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of those stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall be all the families of the earth blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let us pray. Lord, at the hearing of these words today, your words, I pray that our hearts would just burst forth. Yearning and desiring your ever presence. And Lord, as we sit here, God, I pray that you would make little of me, but very much of yourself in the hearing of this testimony this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in order to really unpack this passage some, I want to start by giving a little context. I don't know if you know this, but Jacob uh, was named because he grabbed his brother's ankle as they were being birthed from their mom. And, and really, part of this, this label is because Jacob, if you haven't heard any of his story before, he's a deceiver. He is a deceiver. He's known as kind of deceptive in his ways. In fact, he deceived his brother Esau out of his birthright because his brother Esau was hungry and was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup. Sounds dumb, I know, but that's what happened. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. I have never been that hungry. I hope that I am never that hungry. And if I am ever that hungry, please stop me from selling my birthright. But that's what happens is Jacob deceives his brother by giving him a bowl of soup in order to receive the birthright that was owed to Esau as the firstborn. I can't explain it in words for us today because we don't live under that context where the firstborn gets everything, right? That's not how we work in society today, but that's how it was back then. And he sold that birthright to his brother Jacob. But then, later on, as Isaac gets older and the boys get older, Esau and Jacob together, there's this moment where Isaac is, is old and wants to give away the firstborn blessing, wants to bless his son Esau. And so he sends Esau out to get him his favorite meal, but in the meantime, Jacob starts to uh, come up with this plan with his mother to actually take that blessing from Esau. And so Jacob deceives his father who is old and his eyesight is failing him so he can't see the son that is approaching. And Jacob steals the blessing from his brother Esau. The blessing of the father to the firstborn. Again, it is not something that can be explained in today's society because we don't do it that way. We would want to bless all of our children equally. But for them, the firstborn got the greatest blessing. But Jacob receives it instead by deceiving his father, deceiving his brother. 
And so if you hear that story, you might be thinking, man, Jacob is not a good guy. And you're probably right. Jacob was not a good guy. He was not a good son. He was not a good brother. I'm sure he wasn't a great friend to have. He lived his life through deception. That is who he was. But you see, his brother Esau comes back from the field expecting to receive this firstborn blessing from his father, from Isaac. And Isaac says, I can't give it to you. I've already given it away. And so Esau grows angry and mad at his brother for this thing that he has done. And Esau conspires in his heart that he is going to kill his brother in order to regain what is his. He's going to regain his birthright and he's going to regain the firstborn blessing. But Esau lets this plan slip to his mother and his mom turns to tell her son Jacob and she says, flee. Run away from this place so that your brother cannot kill you. Go to my brother who lives in Haran. Go to Laban and take a wife from him. And so that's exactly what Jacob does, is he flees his home, flees his family in order to escape certain death from his angry brother who he has deceived multiple times. And that's where we find ourselves in the scripture today. That is exactly where we're at. And so Jacob is on his way into exile to make a new life in Haran, away from his family, and to start building his own family. But before we get to Haran and we get to Laban, we have this moment of Jacob while he's in the wilderness on his journey. And so I want to reread a part of that passage, but I want to emphasize some certain things that have spoken deeply to me in my preparation of it. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking out one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold... There was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, which could also be translated from the Hebrew to mean, and stood beside him. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. There's an acknowledgement of God's transcendence. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate 
of heaven. So the very first thing that I was emphasizing was this word, behold. Behold is one of those words in scriptures that whenever you see it, you should probably pause for a second and be like, oh, I'm about to see something really important. There is something here that I am supposed to look at. In fact, when we hear the word behold, what we should be hearing is you have to see it for yourself. You have to experience this for yourself. I'm about to tell you something that you need to know. And so pay attention. Look here. See what is about to occur. Behold. And so I want to think about that word for a second because in my life, I've wondered how many times I've actually taken a second to behold what God is doing around me. To actually see God in his time and place, in this area, in that area, in this way of life, in that way of life. How many times am I seeing where God is because I fail to actually behold, to look, to see, to experience what God is doing? You see, behold is a word that is calling us and inviting us into this walk and experience in life with God. Why? Because he is imminent and he is particularly interested in the people within his creation. I actually love how A.W. Tozer says this. I'm gonna use him a lot probably in this series, because he's just so profound in the way that he thinks about God. He said, few other truths are taught in scriptures with as great clarity as the doctrine of the divine omnipresence. Those passages supporting this truth are so plain that it would take considerable effort to misunderstand them. They declare that God is imminent in his creation that there is no place in heaven or earth or hell where men may hide from his presence. They teach that God is at once both far off and near and that in him men move and live and have their being. I don't want us to move too quickly away from that fact that God's imminence is predicated equally upon his omnipresence. That means that there is nowhere in all of creation that you can go to escape him. And so when God in this scripture is saying to Jacob, behold, it is simply because you can see him in this place. You can see him in what he is doing anywhere and everywhere. You cannot escape it. But there's something that I want us to see about why we might not be able to behold as easily as we should be able to. And that's in verse 16. It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. I believe that oftentimes we miss the imminence of God in our lives, his particular involvement in us and around us, because we 
are too busy, too involved with our own stuff to not see him. That word when he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it, that know can literally be translated as I was not aware or I did not perceive. And oftentimes that happens because we are so busy, so moving so quickly between everything that's going on in our lives, moving from this thing to that thing, so involved in our work, so involved in our hobbies, so involved in all the little things. I'm even going to say this, you can be so interested in serving the church that you forgot why you were serving it in the first place. And you never took a moment to slow down and rest to see God, to behold this imminent creator that wants to be particularly involved in your life. Jacob had to sleep in order for God to get his attention. It was in a dream that God came to him because it was the only moment that Jacob was moving slow enough, not deceiving anybody, not running away from his family for God to speak to him. And so it was in that place. And furthermore, I want us to be clear that there is no place that God is not. We read from Psalm 139 earlier today, but I want to focus on verse 8. David wrote, If I ascend to heaven, you are there, and if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And the way that this is written, the understanding in the Hebrew would be that there is no place in heaven or in hell or anywhere in between that I can go to escape your presence. David knew that God was so imminent, so involved, so present in creation and in his life that there was no place that David could go that God was not there, not already there, and not will be there when he leaves that place. God is everywhere. But we have to slow down. We are such a fast-paced, moving people. And we never take the moment to behold and see what God is doing in this place. And then I want to go back to verses 13 through 15 and just hone in on this. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or, and the Lord stood beside Jacob and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Going forward, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. God is intimately involved in every aspect of Jacob's life. Whether he recognized it before he certainly is starting to see it now and beginning to understand it later. God has his hand on Jacob in a very intimate and personal way. And what I want us to grasp and take away from this is that 
that same access to the Father is also for you. You see, Jesus actually said it best in John chapter 1, verse 51, when he alluded to this ladder that Jacob saw in his dream, when he saw that God was close to him, this is how Jesus described that moment about himself. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, just like Jacob saw, and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending, just like Jacob saw, on the Son of Man, that is, on Jesus. And so if any of us believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then the imminent, personal, and intimate presence of God is already upon your life. It is already there. But do you see it? Do you perceive it? Are you aware of it? Do you acknowledge it? Do you live it? That is our invitation this morning, to live into the fullness of God's imminence in our life. Yes, know that God is transcendent. He is other than you in every way. But he is imminently interested in you. Through the work and power of Jesus, he made his access to himself as easy as it ever was. And he's inviting you into that relationship with him today. And so as we close, I want us to take a moment to think first, is there a moment in my past where I beheld God in my life? So let's take a moment. I want you to think about that for just a second. Is there a moment in my past where I saw God at work, where I beheld him? Just think about that right now. Now, if you've had one of those moments, I want you to go forth and remember what it was that allowed you to experience God in that way and how you can start to experience him like that again so that as you leave this place and as you go forward, you don't miss the imminent God that is beside you, above you, under you, and in you, that is your shield and your protector and your refuge. And then as we become closer and closer with this imminent God, then we begin to respond the way Jacob responded at the end of that passage when he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will get and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob responds with worship. 
with pure worship of who God is for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do in Jacob's life. Because Jacob is now aware and he cannot miss it. He cannot never see God again. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, as we come to you, it's my prayer, my desire that all of us would experience you as the imminent God, a God who is intimately invested and involved in our lives, and that in Jesus, you made a way that we can be directly connected to you, that there is now nothing that holds us back from the fullness of relationship with the Father. We love you, Lord. Amen.